We're going to be returning to the book of Exodus this morning. So if you have uh, your copy of God's Word with you this morning, we're going to be in Exodus beginning in chapter 1. Two weeks ago when we had an introductory message on Exodus, I introduced you to the concept of Jesus' Bible and it being divided into the law and the prophets and the writings. If that was a topic of interest to you, there's a book on the book spinner called What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About, a survey of Jesus' Bible. And if you would like to check out that book, we got those uh, on sale. And we have some extra ones in the office too if you're interested in that. Uh, sometimes when I, I preach, people ask me what Bible I'm preaching from. And so I'll just tell you this time, <laughs> I'm, I'm preaching from the Legacy Standard Bible as we go through the book of Exodus. Uh, I think it does an excellent job in helping you to see the author's intent in his word choice. And I think you'll recognize that as I read it and as we continue in this book together. Last time we, we considered how Exodus is the cornerstone of theology Theology of who God is, God's name, God's word, man, sin, salvation, God's law instruction, the future, and uh, a biblical worldview. We also considered how to read a narrative, and the two things that I gave you to, to help you think through reading a narrative is the plot and the perspective. And I explained that narratives are the come and see books of the Bible, to come and see God at work in his world and these books show you a perspective to give you a perspective. Exodus is a gospel book. It's about what we sang in that song, Let Your Kingdom Come. It's about God making his name known to the nations. It's about the one true God who delivers, instructs, and is present with his people. It's a book about missions, evangelism, and discipleship from the God who has all authority and is with us to the end of the age to carry out his mission of making his, known, his name known throughout all of creation. And as I read through Exodus chapters 1-2, I want you to keep your ear open for the word names and the names that are there and the names that are not there. The Hebrew title for the book Exodus is actually the first words of the book, uh, now these are the names. Uh, in short, the, the Hebrew title is just names because this is the book of the names that are about the name ultimately. So keep your ear open for that. Also keep your ear open for God's creation purpose of uh, being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with the knowledge of who he is. Uh, listen for the Genesis 315 seed battle that we had talked about a couple of weeks back. The battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman being played out. Listen for the connections that are made into the Noahic creation covenant and the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So listen for names, for God's creation purpose, and his covenants. Let's begin in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, 
Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. And all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. And a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it be in the event of war that they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and go up from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labors. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. So the Egyptians brutally compelled the sons of Israel to slave labor. And they made their lives bitter with hard slave labor. And mortar and bricks and all kinds of slave labor in the field. All their slave labor which they brutally compelled them to do. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives one of whom was named Shifra, and the other was named Puah. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? Then the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can come to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Now it happened that because the midwives feared God, he made households for them. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. And a man from the house of Levi went and took a daughter of Levi as a wife. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And she saw that he was beautiful, so she hid him for three months. But she could not hide him any longer, so she took for him an ark of papyrus reeds and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and put it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her young women, walking alongside the Nile, and she saw the ark among the reeds and sent her maidservant, and she took it to her. Then she opened it and saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. 
So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Now it happened in those days that Moses had grown up, and he went out to his brothers and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his brothers. So he turned this way and that, and he saw that there was no one around. So he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Then he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were struggling with each other. And he said to the wicked one, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a ruler or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. And Pharaoh heard of this matter, so he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to give water to their father's flock to drink. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses rose up and saved them and gave water to their flock to drink. Then they came to Raoul, their father, and he said, Why have you come back so soon today? So they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he actually even drew the water for us and gave water to the flock to drink. And he said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Call him so that he may eat bread. And Moses was willing to settle down with the man. And he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now it happened in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of their slavery, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God knew them. God, we pray that you would bless this reading and teaching of your word, that we would see your manifest, unchanging faithfulness, and that it would encourage our hearts to walk with you in faithful trust that you will carry out your purposes and promises and your creation, that we would be faithful to make you known to the nations. Amen. In the first seven verses of chapter one, we read of the multiplying. The multiplying are those who are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt, as we see in verse one. How many of you know the name or even the occupation of your great-great-grandfather? Well, as you think about that and how you probably most likely don't know that, that was true also for the Exodus generation who received this book from Moses in the wilderness. Uh, they didn't know about their great-great-grandfather so Exodus begins with reminding Israel of their family history going back 
four generations. But why? Because they needed to be reminded of their history just like we need to be reminded of our own history so that they would know who they were and why they existed. They needed to know who their God was and what their relationship to him was and what their role in the world was. Later on when Israel would receive the preamble to their constitution in chapter 19, we learn that their role was to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be representatives of God's kingdom to the world. And you may recall how Peter uses this same language of the church in 1 Peter 2.9 when he says that y'all are a kingdom of priests, that we're also representatives of God's kingdom. Israel's history is our history. It tells us that our God is the only God. He is the faithful one who is faithful to his creation purpose and his covenants, that we are his slaves and our role in his world is to be representatives of his kingdom. In short, these seven verses begin to communicate, this is who you are and why you exist. You are God's and you exist to make him known. As you may remember from last time, we talked about the significance of them being 70. As back in Genesis 10 to 11, before the Tower of Babel incident, we read of the table of nations, and it lists 70 nations. Now I read that from the loins of Jacob, they were 70 in number. This is to communicate that God is going to carry out his plan by making them into a nation that's going to be a blessing to the nations. These 70 will be tied to those 70. But you remember that at the Tower of Babel that those people rebelled by seeking to not fill the earth but to be in one place and to make a name for themselves and not for God. But in Genesis 12, God promised to a man named Abram that he would make a great nation out of him that would bless the nations. Uh, God already had a Babel reversal program in place that would involve one nation being a blessing to nations. And God go on, went on to explain to Abram in Genesis 15 that uh, his seed would be as numerous as the stars and be enslaved in Egypt for a time. In Genesis 17, God's command is also a promise. His command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is a promise. And I want you to hear that as I read Genesis 17, 6 and 7. The Lord says, And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will go forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. As you think on these verses, I want you to think about how it's encouraging and that it reminds us that the success of God's plan doesn't depend on our performance, but it depends on his promise. The things that he commanded that be done in his creation, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, God promises he's going to do the very thing that he's commanded us to do. In the beginning of 
the book of Exodus, we're seeing the faithfulness of God to his creation purpose and his covenants. You recall, as already stated, that God's creation purpose from Genesis 1-7 was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that command continued after the fall in Genesis 9 when God gave that command also to Noah and his sons in the fallen world. And God made a covenant with Noah and all of creation, which would be the platform covenant for all of God's other covenants to play out on so that God would carry out his purpose in creation for his glory by filling the earth with his glory. This word filled ends up being a word that is bookends of the, word, of the book of Exodus. The book begins in chapter 1 verse 7 by saying the land was filled with them. And the book ends with saying the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Israel is multiplying at this point because they're under God's blessing. They're multiplying because God is being faithful to his mission of evangelizing and discipling the world. But why is Israel, why is the sons of Israel under God's blessing? Uh, Think about it. Abraham was kind of a scaredy cat at times. Isaac was more interested in following his taste buds than God's word. And Jacob's name means schemer. And he was, he was that, to be sure, and had a family in his own likeness. Was Israel under God's blessing because they were such good people? Because they earned it? Because they had amazing life strategies? The answer is found to these questions and why God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Israel means God fights for you. They were under God's blessing not because of foreseen merit or worth, but because God chooses to magnify his grace by saving bad, undeserving schemers and turning them into his sons. They were what they were by the grace of God. They were what they were because God fought for them. God changed them. God recreated them. As you hear these things, I want you to ask yourself, do you believe in this God? Do you believe in the God of the sons of Israel Do you believe in the God of creation who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and takes somebody like Jacob and makes him Israel? Hebrews chapter 11 picks up on speaking of these men and says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been remembering that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they aspire to a better country, that is a a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, 
for he prepared a city for them. Saints, God is not ashamed to be called your God, even for all the badness and sin and scheming that there might be in your own life. God is not ashamed to be called your God and to send you, even you, on his mission of making him known until the day when the prophet Jeremiah writes, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know Yahweh, for they will all know me. In this text, God's Exodus prophecy is faithfully being carried out, as was read to us this morning from Genesis 15. God's Exodus prophecy is faithfully being played out, whether people are mindful of it or not. And even though Joseph died and his brothers in that generation died, God's creation purpose and covenants live on. Abraham was now the father of a multitude, and the land was filled with them. And God knows why he sent Joseph to Egypt, even if nobody else does. Which brings us to considering the magistrate, beginning in verse 8. In this section concerning the magistrate, that is the king of Egypt, the current reigning pharaoh, this was Satan's mascot. Satan's mascot, Pharaoh, meant what he did for affliction, but God meant it for multiplication. The new king over Egypt did not know Joseph, but you might remember there was a previous Pharaoh who did know Joseph, and he blessed Joseph, and he was blessed because he blessed Joseph. But this Pharaoh is going to curse the sons of Israel, and he will be cursed himself because God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. Here we hear echoes not only of the Tower of Babel, but also the shrewd serpent of the garden and the words, come let us deal wisely according to our wisdom from below and seek to stop God's multiplication plan. How is it that the Israelites went from having one of their own as an equal to Pharaoh to being slaves? Well, the short answer is God ordained it. It was God's plan. He stated it before these things ever happened hundreds of years before in Genesis 15, 13. God ordained the affliction as much as he ordained the multiplication that was happening as well to show that he's a curse reverser. God's plan is all going according to plan, and the affliction that's happening isn't an accident. Well, now after considering a bit of Pharaoh's, or God's plan, let's consider a little bit of Pharaoh's plan. Pharaoh's plan was this, work them to death so they don't multiply, and kill all the potential young warriors so that they don't rise up against his rule with other potential political enemies. There was an ethnic societal war going on between a certain type of Egyptians known as the Hyksos Egyptians versus the Hebrews, which when you read about this in Egyptian history, the, the Hebrews are known as the Habaru or the Apiru. 
Apiru was more of a societal category during this time rather than an ethnic category. Uh, it means dusty or dirty. So anybody who was a Hebrew was seen as the lowlifes of society. The Egyptians saw them as they're just those who are rebels and outlaws against the Egyptian superpower. They were slaves and laborers. And this term wasn't used only for ethnic Hebrews as we might think about it, but the Egyptians used it for all political dissidents who didn't bow the knee to the totalitarian rule of Egypt. And so this pharaoh sought to reorder the society with saying the particular ethnic Hyksos are superior to everybody else. Uh, pharaoh was an early proponent of critical theory before it was known as critical theory. Pharaoh did this because he resented God's creation purpose, covenants, and people. And Pharaoh executed his tyranny through the mechanics of civil government and influencing popular feelings toward the Hebrews as a totalitarian ruler who sought to oppress people. But they only multiplied. Well, what was Pharaoh's motivation? I think as you read through the text, you see Pharaoh's motivation was fear, safety, and comfort. He feared people rising up against his authoritarian rule, so he afflicted them. He feared for his personal safety, but could care less about others. He feared losing his kingdom of comfort and storehouses built on the backs of slave labor. Fear, safety, and comfort are all priorities of the seed of the serpent. Seen still in the priorities of current dictators and wannabe totalitarians who always attack family and the fruit of family out of the fear of losing what they call women's reproductive rights, who always attack work and the multiplication of productive use of land because of so-called public health and safety issues, who always attack worship and filling the earth with the knowledge of the one true God because proclaiming him makes some people uncomfortable. Pharaoh propagandized his people with fear of man and ethnic societal hate to justify violating God's command for his creatures to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with his glory in family, work, and worship. Pharaoh attacked the God-given pre-political family work worship rights given in the beginning of Genesis. If you're interested in reading more on this topic, there's an excellent book called God Versus Government on the book spinner that you can pick up. And it's a needed book today because we need to understand these things because the ancient battle of seed continues this very day. As we work through this text, you can see that there's a problem in Egypt with the seed of the woman. That's the, the seed of the woman is slaving for the wrong master. And this word translated slaved throughout the book of Exodus is also translated serve or worship. It comes up again in Exodus chapter 3 when God tells Moses, you shall serve God at this mountain. God is going to take a people from hard slavery 
to Pharaoh, to worshipful, to worshipful service to himself. Exodus is teaching us a theology of slavery. It's slavery from something and to something else. It's from the hard, laborious labor of work to Pharaoh to the joyful, restful service of worshiping God. And why is, all of these, why is all of this happening? Why is there all of this tension between the sons of Israel and the Egyptians? Why is all of this happening? Do you remember what I taught you the uh, adult Sunday school answer is? In children's Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus. In adult Sunday school, the answer is always Genesis 3.15. That's why this is happening. Because the ancient battle of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman continues. And God's word shows you a perspective on these things to give you a perspective on these things. It gives you a worldview of history from the perspective of the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. A culture of life versus a culture of death. And understanding these things helps you to understand that Modern issues are ancient issues. Think about it. What are modern day issues like reproductive health, climate change, and build back better really about? Why do they always try to motivate people with fear, safety, comfort? Why do they do the opposite of what they promise and in reality steal, kill, and destroy? Why do they lie so much? Because they are of their father, the ancient serpent, who is anti-fruitful, anti-multiply, anti-fill the earth, anti-marriage, anti-image of God, anti-children, anti-personal property, anti-creation purpose, anti-covenant, and ultimately anti-Christ. Certainly as we work through this text, you see there is much evil intent from evil agents behind the sufferings of mankind. But God has good intent in the suffering that he ordains, especially the good of making his name known, to reveal himself as creator, to reveal himself as judge, and to reveal himself as redeemer to reveal his glory through suffering, to reveal his salvation through judgment and his plan for the nations. Picking up in verse 15, you begin a section that focuses in on these Hebrew midwives and this edict to throw the Hebrew baby boys into the Nile River. The Nile River was especially known for the fertility that it would bring to the land of Egypt as it would rise during a certain season to water and fertilize the, the agricultural area that surrounded that particular river. And the people viewed this act of fertility in relation to the various gods that they believed in. They believed that it was their fertility gods that was giving them fertility through the Nile River. This was their water source for drinking, for crops, and it was where Pharaoh had these baby boys drowned. 
Drowning babies in a river known for its fertility is as ironic as naming an abortion clinic Planned Parenthood. Genesis 3.15 and the seed battle continues here. That the seed of the woman is going to be preserved despite the affliction that is happening. And God's going to do that through two Hebrew midwives. Remember, this is the book of names. So God puts an emphasis on one being named Shifra, the other being named Pua. And these go down in God's record book of uh, the people that he wants to highlight. But there's somebody's name that we don't know. We don't know the name of Pharaoh. On the world's record books, they put down the name of Pharaoh and not the midwives. But the names that goes down in God's record book is those who feared him. The plot in the book of names continues to follow the names that are about the name, ultimately. And as it's here focused on these two midwives who feared God, God is showing us a perspective to give us a perspective. God is showing us two precious midwives who feared God. They understood the beginning of wisdom, which provided them with skill in living through the situation they were in. It provided them with a heart that lacked self-interest. These women were likely supervisors over various pregnancy centers. They were not prominent in society, but they were women of conviction who resisted the afflictions of a tyrant at the potential of losing their own lives. While the whole world is focused on the world's greatest superpower of Egypt and the current reigning pharaoh, God is slowly turning the world upside down through two God-fearing women. The lawful disobedience of these two women is an admirable example as they lived what the apostles would later speak in Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than men. And I call what they did lawful disobedience because what they did was lawful in God's eyes, though disobedient in the world's eyes. Believers have not only the right, but the responsibility to resist civil authorities when they compel anything that's contrary to God's word, or when that authority steps outside of the legitimate function that God has ordained that they function within. In this case, we must obey God rather than men. Not we might obey God or have the option to obey God, but we must obey God rather than men. And why must we do that? We must do that in order to be salt and light in a dying and dark culture. Because it shows who our love really belongs to. Because it shows what kingdom we really treasure. And because it gives us an evangelistic opportunity to make our king and his kingdom known to the nations. While we rely on our God for victory and faithful resistance and lawful disobedience, even when standing for a righteous cause might be costly. God alone has the sovereignty to make moral demands on his creatures. God alone has the authority to define good and evil. He doesn't share it with Pharaoh. 
Paul encourages us to press on in such matters in Romans chapter 8 and reminding us that we're more than conquerors through him who has loved us. Uh, Death can't separate us from the love of God. And at the end of Romans in chapter 16, Paul encourages us by reminding us that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Picking up in chapter 2, we move from the multiplying and the magistrate and the midwives to now looking at Moses in chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins with a brave Levi couple getting married in these desperate circumstances. Maybe not the first thing on your mind when you're slaves under the superpower of Egypt to think, hey, maybe this is a good time to get married and have kids. But this brave couple chose to do that. And this was a significant point for the Israelites in the wilderness hearing this because they, they already understood the Levitical priesthood and saw their function among them while they were in the wilderness. But they're seeing the significance of this particular lineage grow from this point in history as Moses recounted it to them. And there's this special phrase in this section that comes up throughout Scripture as a cross-reference to tie our minds to some special events. That Those words are, the woman conceived and bore a son. When you read that particular phrase, it links you to uh, special babies in God's redemptive plan. And also, especially on Mother's Day, I did not plan this, but this text happens to highlight mothers. And it highlights women, namely the Hebrew midwives, Moses' mom, Pharaoh's daughter, and the one who adopted Moses. Why do you think that God is highlighting all of these women here? The answer is found in Genesis 3.15. This uh, helps us to understand that verse that sounds so strange to us in 1 Timothy 2.15 when it talks about how uh, she will be saved through childbearing. The idea is that Eve's reputation will be saved through childbearing. Instead of going down in history as the one who usurped her husband's leadership role, she's going to have the reputation of bearing the seed of the woman, that God has a high calling and task for, wi- for women within his world. God is faithfully continuing his Genesis 3, 15 seed promise, and he's emphasizing that by emphasizing the women that are involved in his redemptive plan in this text. You probably noticed that while I was reading this text in the Legacy Standard Bible, when it speaks of Moses' mother, it doesn't say that she put him in a basket, but she put him in an ark, because that's the word that Moses used. Uh, it's in this section of scripture that this is the last time that that particular word ark is used, and it's only used in one other place in scripture. Do you want to guess where that is? It's in Genesis 6 through 9. The point that's being made by the author here is that this baby is linked to that baby. This this Moses guy is linked to the Noah guy. You remember Noah's name means rest. He's saying this guy's going to be a a guide to God's salvation rest for God's people. 
you're seeing God's covenant promises are carrying out on the platform of God's creation covenant. And it's anticipating God's people going into God's rest and God's land. This baby was placed among the reeds. This was, again, the Nile where Pharaoh would drown any seed of the Hebrew women. And it would also be the very place from which a deliverer would be drawn out. And the point that's being made here is that God is beginning to lay out the pattern of what his deliverer is like. And also what his deliverance will be like. The point that's being built here is what happens to Moses will happen to Israel also. His deliverance from the reeds will connect to Israel's dry crossing through the reed sea. Those happen to be the same words that are uh, used throughout Exodus. The deliverance of Moses will become the deliverance for his people. God will shape him to be in corporate solidarity with his people. He's going to shape them to be, he's going to shape him to be the one who will represent many into God's salvation. And as you see in this text, that God, in thwarting Pharaoh's plan, mocks him through his own daughter. It's Pharaoh's daughter who ends up being the one who delivers this baby boy who is placed in the Nile. And also that you think about this event where she ends up hiring Moses' mom to nurse the child and to get paid for it. That's a good deal. But in this exchange, the mother of Moses meets the daughter of the tyrant persecutor. But amidst all of this, seeing that everything's going according to God's plan, he's in control of everything, and circumstances are turning toward hope and salvation. And this baby was named Moses. Moses means drawn out, which you can learn by just reading the next words. Uh, it says, because she moses him out of the water, because she drew him out of the water. Noah and Moses both passed through deadly waters, safe in an ark, immersed into God's deliverance to deliver others from a place where others perished. And what happens to Moses is going to happen to Israel. The deliverance of the deliverer will become the deliverance of the people. God is teaching us a pattern of how his salvation works in this text. Picking up in verse 11, we read of how Moses ends up fleeing to Midian. And as you read this text after he had grown up, it says, he went out to his brothers. Now, these weren't the Egyptians that he went out to. These were his brothers, the sons of Israel, and he saw their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian mistreating one of the Hebrews, one of his brothers, and in seeking to deliver them, his own people ended up rejecting his deliverance that he sought to brought, responding to him by saying, well, who died and made you boss? 
the Hebrews weren't expecting a deliverer. And why were they so upset? Hey, think about just the time that they live in. Times were tough. They're also thinking, that Egyptian died and somebody's going to get blamed for it. and We don't want it to be us. They were also thinking, you know, we've seen enough killing around here. Why trust another killer? Well, Israel rejected Moses. So Moses ends up going out to the Midianites, the Gentiles. This reminds us of Jesus in John 1.11, where it says of Jesus that he came to his own, but his people did not receive him. Moses, like Jesus, was eager for the deliverance of a people that were just concerned that he was there just to cause trouble and upset things for him. But Moses, unlike Jesus, was faulty in his leadership. This whole debacle shows us that, one, that the Hebrews didn't only need to be delivered from Egypt, they needed to be delivered from one another. Uh, They needed a salvation that wasn't always horizontal, but also vertical. Moses, in killing the Egyptian, shows us another thing. God didn't tell him to do that. Uh, This was Moses' plan, not God's plan. This was in Moses' strength, not displaying God's strength. This was in Moses' timing, not God's timing. And why didn't these things turn out in his favor? He understood that he was to be a deliverer, but he was seeking to do it his own way rather than God's way. This teaches us and reminds us that God alone is Savior, and he's not going to share his glory with a self-appointed Savior. That God's going to do things his way on his terms for his glory alone. Now, the Pharaoh that sought to kill Moses was his stepbrother. This understanding that this was his stepbrother helps you to recognize that his killing this Egyptian looked like a challenge to the throne. This is why Moses flees, because he recognized that him killing an Egyptian makes it look like He's coming to take the throne that his stepbrother's sitting on. And after the failed deliverance of his brothers, one of the things that's interesting in a turn of events in Moses' life is that he does successfully deliver some people. He delivers these daughters of a particular priest and shepherd, where Moses sees these bullying shepherds of these daughters who went to seek to draw some water. And... You see three verbs that describe salvation very well. That Moses rose up, saved them, and gave them water. This is going to be the pattern for God's deliverer. And it's interesting to read the daughters and how they perceived and reported this event to their father. This is what they said about Moses. An Egyptian delivered us, drew the water, and gave water to the flock to drink. Why? Did they see him as an Egyptian? And why does Moses write that for us and give us that particular word? And Why didn't they say a son of Israel? Why an Egyptian? Well, because Moses isn't what he should be yet. He's not in solidarity as with his people as a son of Israel. He needs to be humbled if he's going to be the leader that God wants him to be. He needs to be recreated in relationship with his people first, and God's going to prepare him to shepherd that flock for 40 years in the wilderness, 
by having him shepherd another flock for 40 years in that same wilderness. There's some humorous, wild, wild east things that happen within this text as well as these daughters come back to speak to their father and he responds to them and it's like, you crazy girls, go back and invite them over for supper. Like he just delivered you, helped you get some water. Let's give the guy some bread. Well, Moses comes over. He meets his soon-to-be father-in-law. He marries uh, his daughter Zipporah. And they have a child named Gershom, which means stranger there. Because Moses recognized he's a stranger and sojourner everywhere. He was a stranger in Egypt. He's a stranger in Midian. And an unlikely candidate for being used to establish a new nation out of the most powerful nation on the planet. Yet, it is here in the wilderness and in this really long timeline that God chooses to prepare his deliverer. As we come to verses 23 to 25 in chapter 2, the last few verses, it raises the question, where's God at in all of this? Well, as you continue on in this text, it says, the king of Egypt died and the next pharaoh that's going to be up is actually Moses' step-nephew. And this king's death didn't end their slavery. And in this we see God's timetable is different than ours. Forty years in the wilderness to, to train a guy to lead a people is a long time. Uh, we tend toward simple, quick solutions, not complicated, long-suffering sort of solutions. Uh, we prefer microwave solutions rather than slow-cooked solutions. But which tastes better in the end? It's the victory of those complex, long-suffering sort of things that always bring about the sweet taste of victory in the end. It can be difficult to see how God can use our own miseries to lead to such blessing, but we must remember that God is the kind of God who does that kind of thing. Israel's response to all of this, even after the king of Egypt died, was they sighed and they cried, just screaming out because of the miseries of their slavery, and not into anyone in particular. They're just screaming because of their slavery. Time and political change has made no improvement for them. And there's an evident lack of belief among the sons of Israel They've been broken down by their affliction and paganized. But nonetheless, God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. God heard, and he would save them, not because they earned it somehow, but because he covenanted to do so. God remembered, which was implied earlier in the text and seeing these people multiplying, but now it's made explicit that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that it continues on and on and on. And the idea here with this word remembered isn't that God forgot and then just suddenly he remembered because he heard some people screaming. God never forgets anything. The idea here is that he forwarded his covenant. 
as that's exactly what covenants do. Covenants frame and forward God's redemptive plan. Covenants frame and forward God's redemptive plan. Covenants frame and forward everything in history. This word remember is about covenant forwarding, not covenant forgetfulness. And this truth reminds us that God's covenants never leave God's mind. And he's going to be faithful to fulfill everything exactly how he promised he was going to do it. God also saw the people of Israel, which reminds us that suffering never goes unnoticed by God. The suffering of the sons of Israel was not an accident that God was just trying to respond to. God never responds to anything. He always has already ordained everything and is perfectly carrying out things exactly according to the counsel of his will. He foreordained this event to happen, as already stated in Genesis 15. And it wasn't because of a lack of God's love that these things were happening, but to exemplify his love all the more against this dark backdrop. This was all going according to God's sovereign plan. Is that how you think about your suffering? Do you think about your own suffering as this is part of God's plan? This is exactly how he wants it to happen. Or do do you think about it as something that not only has a beginning, but it also has an end? Saints, no suffering that you endure in this life can last forever. All of your suffering must come to an end forever. And as we continue to meditate on this, I want to ask the question, does God ever ordain any suffering without good purpose and result? Perhaps I can put it this way. Have you learned more about who God is from happiness or pain? Have you learned more wisdom through laughing or tears? Do you learn more about how to live by going to a wedding or a funeral? What has most profoundly shaped godly character in you? Days of leisure or days of suffering? Did you learn to say, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus during days of being entertained or days of being sustained through days of heartache? The Puritan Richard Sibbs tries to capture this sentiment with these words, measure not God's love and favor by your own feeling. The sun shines as clearly in the darkest day as it does in the brightest. The difference is not in the sun, but in some clouds which hinder the manifestation of the light thereof. Fathers and mothers of the sons of Israel lived day by day with the memory of drowned sons as they drank from that same river. Perhaps wondering what he might have looked like with mixed feelings of, I wish I could have held him longer, to it's better he doesn't have to live in this world. There's something about such suffering where you just want to know that somebody's heard you. You just want to know that you haven't been forgotten. You just want to know that somebody's noticed and that somebody knows. And these last two verses, especially the last two words, 
are a comfort to those perplexed by suffering. God knew. God knew his people. God knew his Exodus prophecy about this going on for four centuries. God knew their sufferings. God knew his creation purpose. God knew his covenants with these people. Now, Pharaoh didn't know Joseph and brought about much suffering, but God knew about their suffering and would make himself known to all through suffering. Here we're positioned for God to further make himself known on his terms and in his timing. Even to the day when Jesus Christ would be delivered from a king who desired to kill all the baby boys and come out of the baptism waters, be tested in the wilderness, shepherd his flock and cut a new covenant, and fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Exodus chapters 1 to 2 shows us how God establishes his deliverer to emphasize the greatness of his love, to bend all of creation, to bend all of time for the deliverance of his people out of the most desperate of circumstances. Exodus 1 through 2 beckons us to come and see God faithfully carrying out his creation purpose and covenants. It teaches us that suffering is part of that plan, that faithfully fearing him alone is the only right response, that the deliverance of his deliverer will become the deliverance of his people. Jesus's death and resurrection exodus will become our death and resurrection exodus. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our faithful God, we are in awe of your faithfulness throughout history, your faithfulness to your creation purpose, your faithfulness to your covenants, to Noah and creation, to Abraham and the patriarchs. We see a display of your great love and your undeserved grace being shown toward your people. And such truths strengthen us to see you as you are, to see you as the faithful God so that we would be strengthened to follow you faithfully and to carry on in your mission of making your name known to the nations. Amen. God's unchanging faithfulness to his creation purpose and covenants strengthen your trust in him as you seek to be faithful to our king and his kingdom cause while the battle rages on. Happy Genesis 315 day. You're dismissed.